You give Teller from Jerusalem 20 minutes, and he'll give you the education of a lifetime. King of the storytellers and the Shakespeare of the Torah world, here is Rabbi Hanok Teller. Hello out there in podcast land. Welcome to Teller from Jerusalem. And here we are at Season 2, Episode 29. How was Israel to defend herself against five attacking Arab countries? We welcome the rookies. We welcome the veterans. For our podcast, we do not merely teach, but also touch. We resume our schedule of podcasts regarding the early struggle to build the State of Israel. And here again is a reminder for upcoming schedule for the summer of 2023. We are only going to go on recess in August, and then we'll pick up again after our summer recess, which begins August until October 18. In the 1930s, the Haganah already understood that they were going to need weapons to defend themselves in their quest for independence. Accordingly, they developed plans to smuggle weapons and establish clandestine arms factories. The Sten submachine gun was the mainstay of the Palmach, and it was relatively easy to build clandestinely, but the Haganah had difficulty obtaining the 9mm cartridges needed for the weapons. The head of the clandestine Israeli military industries, Yosef Avidar, who would later be in charge of the IDF Central Command, devised a plan to smuggle in the necessary machinery to manufacture ammunition. Twelve machines were, were needed to handle the different aspects of cartridge production, such as punching, drilling, cutting, etc. The machines were purchased in Poland in 1938, but on the eve of World War II, the Haganah could not get the machinery any closer to Israel than Beirut, Lebanon. They were stored there for nearly four years in the Haganah warehouse. With the help of Jews serving in the British Army, the machines were finally brought to Palestine by train. The site for the future plant, which is known or was known as Kibbutz Hill, Kibbutz is a communal assembly, which is in Rehovot. I'd like to call that in Israel's Midwest, but that's so funny. There, there is no left coast, there is no east coast. So it's a, it's a term for a country appropriate like America, which has flyover states, but Rehovot is just somewhere in the middle. And today that site is called the Ayalon Institute, and it's the Ayalon Institute's website, which is my major source of material. Now, the Ayalon Institute, Kibbutz Hill, that was known to be a kibbutz where they would train youth for kibbutz life. The location had a number of strategic advantages, or you're from England, advantages, for a clandestine manufacturing plant. It was already established as a kibbutz before British scrutiny on anything erected during their colonial mandate. The kibbutz's location on a hill enabled obscured buildings and underground construction. A nearby train station provided deafening noise to cover the factory's operation. The Haganah recruited a group of 45 teenagers and young adults who had to maintain absolute secrecy regarding the kibbutz's clandestine operations, lest they all face death sentences at the hands of the British, who were constantly inspecting for arms. The entire purpose of the kibbutz was to be a smokescreen and a facade created on top of the clandestine munitions plant. Not even all of the kibbutz members were aware of what was taking place underground, where there was a bullet factory right under their homes. The kibbutzniks had an interesting and typically Israeli term 
to refer to those in the dark. And they were referred to as giraffes by the factory workers, named after the giraffes brought to the Tel Aviv Zoo, who were unable to see what was taking place right underneath their feet. Giraffe, giraffe, why is your neck so long? Giraffe, giraffe, I want to sing you this song. You are the cutest mammal the world will ever see. You are my best friend, you stick out your neck for me. You rise up head and shoulders far above the beast. Not like the bender fella who eats shoots and leaves. Oh giraffe, you giraffe, me crazy. Oh giraffe, you giraffe, me crazy. The group working in the clandestine factory manufactured some two and a quarter million cartridges to 1945-1948, an average of 40,000 per day, right under the noses of the British. The bullets were crucial for the early success of the Israeli fighters. In the impressively short time of just three weeks, the hill was dug out and a large underground chamber, the size of a tennis court, was excavated. On top of the factory, there were typical buildings found in any ordinary kibbutz, a dining room, a community hall, a children's house, chicken coop, cow barn, and workshops. But most importantly, there was also a laundry and a bakery. These two enterprises were the perfect camouflage for disguising and muffling what was taking place underground. A secret entrance had to be made for the workers. And of course, when I say workers, I'm referring to volunteers. Volunteers that were risking their lives for the British punishment for possessing weapons was death. And they also had to have an opening to lower the colossal, colossal bullet-making machinery. The giant hole used for this purpose was concealed by the bakery's 10-ton oven. The underground workers required ventilation, which was enabled by the laundry. Among all the piping hooked up to the laundry machine were tubes to funnel fresh air from above and other pipes to disgorge the gases and polluted air from below. For the washing machine to conceal the noise and smell of the factory, it had to be in use 24 hours a day. That's a lot of loads for a small kibbutz. Even the clothing also had to do their fair share for the nascent state. So the kibbutz members' clothing was washed so often that they became ragged, threadbare, but at least they were always clean. Even with this constant cycle of local clothing, greater vine was indicated to maintain, to maintain the cover. The kibbutz therefore opened up a laundry service with presumably discounts for bulk orders. Nearby kibbutzim sent their laundry and linens to be washed for a small fee. Even the British brought their uniforms to be cleaned, but it was a risky liability having the prying eyes of the British soldiers on the premises. To distance the British troops, the kibbutz extended a convenient and expedient, in every sense, delivery service. Because of the proximity of a British base near the kibbutz, the kibbutz, which means communal living, was under constant scrutiny and subject to frequent visits and inspections from the British. 
One time a group of soldiers walked frightening close to the concealed factory, so a kibbutz member ran over and handed the soldiers beers to distract them and arrest their progress. The officers complained that the beer was warm and of no interest to them. The quick-thinking Haganah operative replied, From now on, if you provide us with advance notice of your arrival, we'll be sure to have the beers chilled and ready for you. And thus they did. I'm going to play for you a summary of what we've already discussed by Morgan Rees. The Ayalon Institute is located 28 miles northwest of Jerusalem. It is located on a kibbutz hill that was made to fool the British into thinking it was a kibbutz during the British mandate. In fact, it was a secret ammunition factory set up by the Jewish underground. In the 1930s, it became clear to the Zionist leaders that they were going to need weapons to defend themselves against the Arabs to fight for their independence. The Jews of Palestine were very resourceful in smuggling weapons and establishing arms factories. The underground factories churned out relatively easy to build Stein submachine guns, but had difficulty in obtaining the 9mm bullets needed for the weapon. The ammunition plant was built almost under the noses of the British, who had a nearby base. Codenamed the Ayalon Institute, the group dug a large underground chamber 300 square yards, 13 feet deep underground, and nearly 2 foot thick walls and ceilings. The entire project was completed in 22 days. To conceal the project, the Jews built housing, a dining hall, chicken coop, cow barn, workshops, a laundry, a bakery, and a vegetable garden to give the outward appearance of an ordinary kibbutz. The laundry was built directly over the factory to provide the pipes to discharge some of the polluted air from below. To conceal the sound of the machinery in the factory, the laundry was kept running 24 hours a day. An entrance to the factory was also built below the main drum of the washer, which could be swung open and shut. The laundry did such a good job cleaning clothes that the British officers used to bring their uniforms to be laundried at the kibbutz. At the other end of the factory was a bakery which provided clean air through pipes that were attached to a bakery furnace. The 10-ton baking oven also concealed a secret entrance to the factory which was revealed only after the several-ton oven was moved along a set of metal runners. We will come back to the end of the summary in just a few minutes. Naturally, a bullet workshop must be a safe environment because of the highly combustible gunpowder. This factory not only had to conceal what it was doing, but also had to anticipate any possible threat that might reveal its whereabouts and goings-on. This entailed the elimination of any telltale signs or clues or aberrant circumstances that could arouse suspicion. Accordingly, the factory workers would go underground very early in the morning before the sun even rose. To avoid detection, in less than three minutes, the workers would vanish from where they had been last spotted, only to emerge later that day. Now, although the air was exchanged six times per day from the factory to the life above, there was no air conditioning. There was an air conditioning period at that time. And particularly on hot days, working conditions were very, very hard. When temperatures soared above 40 degrees Celsius, the danger of spontaneous ignition of the gunpowder stopped production. Inherent difficulty in maintaining the cover of being a kibbutz worker would be the giveaway pale skin, which starkly contrasts with the bronze hues of the other workers who were out all day long in the fields. 
The absence of sunlight not only marked the workers' bodies, but could also cause dangerous vitamin D deficiencies. This was licked with a careful diet with nutritional supplements and installation of a primitive UV or sun lamp. This way the workers, who never saw the sun, were nonetheless tanned. Another hurdle was acquiring enough brass for the bullet casings without arousing the suspicion of the British who administered the import licenses. Jewish ingenuity again to the rescue. The kibbutz explained to the British authorities that they were operating a beauty business specializing in cases for kosher lipsticks. Parenthetically, there is no need for kosher lipstick. There's nothing edible about it, but the British didn't know this. The British bought this alibi and were rewarded with gifts of lipstick cases. There was no British number cruncher to marvel at the huge amounts of brass imported for such a tiny requirement, enabling huge quantities of brass to be delivered to the kibbutz right under the noses and their lips. Lip color like you've never felt before. New Revlon Color Burst Lipstick. Impossibly light feel, intensely rich color. Together at last. Revlon Color Burst Lipstick. It's love at first swipe. For three years, 45 young men and women engaged in dangerous work in the very hot, dark, dusty, and claustrophobic bullet factory. They worked in two shifts to punch, bend, and cut brass to size, fill it with gunpowder, and finalize each cartridge by installing a primer. Supreme caution was also implemented to avoid injury. Amazingly and providentially, at a non-ideal work site where more than two million bullets were filled by hand with gunpowder, the most severe injury was the loss of a fingertip. Since the gunpowder was smuggled into the factory was sometimes of poor quality, a testing and quality facility was also on the premises. To ensure that the ammunition was safe and effective, bullets were randomly sampled by shooting them at targets to verify accuracy and precision. Each day when the raucous train lumbered by, undetected bullets were fired. When the workers exited the factory, they had to make sure that they were free of any trace of their work, such as brass shavings or gunpowder. This entails a thorough inspection that everyone had to undergo of their clothing, their hair, and their shoes. To avoid suspicion that they were anything but run-of-the-mill kibbutz members, the clandestine workers attended the kibbutz's communal lunch, walking into the dining room as if they had just come from the fields. In the very first year of the, of the factory's operation, the ammunition was smuggled outside the kibbutz in false bottoms of milk cans, milk being a very unsuspicious commodity for an agricultural kibbutz. This method, however, ay, 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 proved problematic as the milk cans were unreasonably too heavy and also far too plentiful. The milk was coming from a small kibbutz, not the dairy-producing capital of the Middle East. A new and less risky method was instituted. And by the way, the limited number of bullets that could be distributed from this way forced the factory to search for an alternate, more effective clandestine means of distribution. The problem was not only to get the bullets out of the kibbutz, but also to get them to each line of defense, manned by the Haganah and the Palmach. So the new method was that at least once a day or night, fuel was delivered to the kibbutz. The British never would have suspected that explosive bullets would be hidden in the secret compartment of fuel trucks. Since the entirety of the operation from manufacture to export to distribution was clandestine, 
the truck's driver's identity was a guarded secret. He'd pull up to the bakery and knock a secret code at the door, and then descend to the factory, deliver new material, and pick up the filled boxes. Since the workers never met the driver, he was referred to as an elf, invisibly providing the materials. It was standard operating procedure in the Haganah that one cell did not know the identity of the other. This way, in the event of capture, a suspect could never betray anyone other than the members of his own cell. After the truck driver left the kibbutz, he would continue to make his deliveries to the network of clandestine Haganah forces. Now, let's return to the summary by Reese. Forty-five people worked below the ground in two shifts. The work was difficult and in relatively dark, dusty, claustrophobic space. Since the workers were underground so long, the Jews quickly realized that they would look suspiciously pale from being out of the sun. A doctor was brought in who came up with a way to use radiation, essentially kind of sun lamp, to allow the workers to tan their skin. After the ammunition was produced, the Jews still had to find a way to smuggle it out to the fighters. At first, they were put in milk cans, but these were too heavy. Later, secret compartments were built into fuel trucks to hide them. Since the British didn't expect anything as explosive as bullets to be hidden in a fuel truck, the factory was kept secret, even from some members of the kibbutz, who were referred to as giraffes. It was only after they were considered trustworthy that the members were informed of the operation. At its peak, the factory produced 40,000 bullets a day. Between 1945 and 1948, the factory produced more than 2 million 9mm bullets. This ammunition was crucial to the early success of the Jewish fighters. Although it ceased operations in 1948, it only became known to the public in 1975. Thank you all for listening, and please tell your friends and relatives to also tune in. Thanks for listening to Teller from Jerusalem, where this series takes an intelligent and thought-provoking look at the past in order to acquire a perspective on the present. Spread knowledge by giving us a five-star review and tell your friends to subscribe. Join us next time for a brand new episode, and be sure to visit tellerfromjerusalem.com where you can find more details about the show and other useful information. Check out the site store and just by inserting TFJ code, you receive an additional 10% discount off the already very reduced prices of all Hanoch Teller products, books, lectures, and documentaries. And remember, don't forget, you can get Teller from Jerusalem on any podcast platform or go to tellerfromjerusalem.com.